Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Secretary of the Treasury, in obedience to the resolution of the House of Representatives of the 21st day of September last, has, during the recess of Congress, applied himself to the consideration of a proper plan for the support of the public credit, with all the attention which was due to the authority of the House and to the magnitude of the object. In the discharge of this duty, he has felt, in no small degree, the anxieties which naturally flow from a just estimation of the difficulty of the task from a well-rounded diffidence of his own qualifications for executing it with success, and from a deep and solemn conviction of the momentous nature of the truth contained in the resolution under which his investigations have been conducted. Quote, that an adequate provision for the support of the public credit is a matter of high importance to the honor and prosperity of the United States with an ardent desire that his well-meant endeavors may be conducive to the real advantage of the nation, and with the utmost deference to the superior judgment of the House, he now respectfully submits the results of his inquiries and reflections to their indulgent construction. Those words began Alexander Hamilton's first report on the public credit, transmitted to the Congress on January 14, 1790, which set off the largest debate to that date in the new federal government, and would be one of the factors leading to the creation of the first-party system, with the Federalists rallying around Hamilton while the Republicans marched under Mr. Jefferson's banner. Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your humble host, Jerry Landry. Hamilton's first charge upon taking office was to prepare a report sent to Congress on their reconvening on what to do about the mess that was the finances of the United States. To understand what this assignment meant, we need to understand the problems facing the new constitutional government, and most of them centered around the public debt. The public debt can be best understood in, quote, three broad categories, foreign, national, and state. Foreign powers, with France being the principal one, but with the Dutch having also contributed, had provided the U.S. with somewhere around 10 to $11 million, quote, in subsidies and loans during the war. Paying these back were seen as a priority and were, quote, well within the capacity of the newly reorganized American government to pay. The other debt was that inherited from the Confederation government and the debt that had been incurred by individual states. To go with the clearest one first, the Confederation debt had been incurred, quote, by issuing unsecured paper money, by selling bonds called loan office certificates, or issuing them directly for supplies, and by authorizing its officers and military commanders in certain circumstances to supply and pay the troops by signing promissory notes in the field. The paper money had depreciated almost to nothingness, quote, not worth a continental. And now the only question remaining was whether to disregard it entirely or redeem it at an extremely devalued rate. The loan office certificates were totaled up to just over $11 million, while the field expenditures totaled about $16 million. More complicated was the state debt issue as, quote, no one knew just how much the states owed at the end of the war, and the matter was even more muddled by 1789. The cardinal fact about the state debts, however, was not their amount, 
but the reduced ability of states to service any debts. Now that the Constitution had vested Congress with exclusive power over the most convenient and lucrative forms of taxation. Indeed, as historian Forrest MacDonald notes, quote, sentiment was widespread that the state obligations should be treated as properly being debts of the nation. This was an idea that the new Secretary of the Treasury could get behind, and would ultimately play a key role in his fiscal plans. However, before we get into the specifics, one should not assume that Hamilton was operating completely of his own volition in crafting his policies. Washington understood, in a general sense, the problems that the nation was facing. He wrote in early 1789 that, quote, My efforts as president shall be unremittingly exerted to extricate my country from the embarrassments in which it is entangled through the want of credit. And he saw, quote, The greatest and most important objects of internal concern which at present occupy the public mind, as manufactures and inland navigation. These could be resolved by an increase in foreign trade, but that could only happen with the nation being on firmer footing in terms of its public credit. As noted by economic historian Curtis P. Nettles, quote, Seven acts of Congress, adopted in 1789 through 1792, made up the Federalist program. Since these acts embodied proposals that were set forth in five historic reports which Hamilton submitted to Congress in 1790 and 1791, many writers have attributed the Federalist program to his influence and have called it the Hamiltonian system. Hamilton certainly worked out the details, fitted the parts together, provided a theoretical basis, and furnished cogent arguments. However, he did not originate the aims, policies, and underlying ideas. Voiced in its larger aspects, the program should be regarded as the work of many Federalist leaders, Washington above all. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. So what exactly did Hamilton propose be done about all of this? MacDonald asserts that, quote, Hamilton set out to plant the British system in America, corruption and all, and to do so within the framework of the Constitution and American institutions. Before he could do that, though, Hamilton had to figure out exactly what kind of a mess the nation was in fiscally. His biographer, Ron Chernow, asserts that, quote, Hamilton's appetite for information was bottomless. To his port wardens, he made minute inquiries about their lighthouses, beacons, and buoys. He asked customs collectors for ship manifests so he could ascertain the exact quantity and nature of cargo being exported. The whole statistical basis of government took shape under his command. One can only imagine what Hamilton would have done with Excel pivot tables and formulas nowadays. He collected both raw data and information from books on political theory, including David Hume's political discourses. He consulted with several folks, including John Witherspoon, president of Princeton College, and Representative James Madison. In a move that would prove to be controversial later on, Hamilton, in his early days as Treasury Secretary, also consulted with Major George Beckwith, a British diplomat that had been sent to New York to discuss U.S.-British trade in the wake of the Tariff Act of 1789. After he had gathered data of various sorts, Hamilton would lock himself away in his study and write. 
What came out of that was his report on public credit. The first hurdle to overcome was pinning down actual numbers. It was great to say that the state debt was immense, but without firm figures to deal with it, not much could be done about it. Somehow, Hamilton arrived at the figure of $25 million that the states owed at the beginning of 1790. Added to that debt held by the federal government, including that owed to foreign lenders, Hamilton calculated that the national debt was $79 million. If you think this sounds like an enormous amount today, according to an online historical currency converter developed by Rodney Edvinson of the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, a link to which I'll provide on the show notes page for this episode, $1 in 1791 is the equivalent of just over $49 in 2015 U.S. currency. Thus, that $79 million figure would in fact be just under $3.9 billion today. Now, I know you're saying to yourself that our national debt as of early 2017 is somewhere around $20 trillion, but our tax revenue is $3.3 trillion, while our gross domestic product is $18 trillion. In 1790, the income of the federal government was $4.4 million, while our exports were valued at $20.2 million. The economy was much smaller at that point, so it would be more difficult to pay off the debt even if the government just stopped spending, which it couldn't do. In 1791, the expenditures of the government were calculated at being just under $3.1 million, with just under $1.2 million of that being interest on our debt. How could we start to crawl out from under this crippling debt and get the nation on a firmer financial footing? Hamilton answered that debt consolidation was key. As I said earlier, the states were now much more limited in their means of being able to repay their debt. Government revenue at the time was much different than it is nowadays. There was no income tax, as most folks did not have a steady income. Rather, most taxes were indirect, and the largest revenue vehicle was the tariff. Tariffs are taxes on goods imported or exported, and in 1791, customs duties would be 99.8% of the government income. It was such an important subject that one of the first bills that Washington would sign would be the Tariff Act of 1789 which was signed on July 4th, before the Judiciary Act or the acts creating the executive departments. The listed objectives of this Tariff Act were, quote, the support of government, the discharge of the debts of the United States, and the encouragement and protection of manufacturers. These words sum up what a tariff is. Not only was it an income generator, but it was also seen as a means that government could help to support burgeoning industries. Say, for example, that we have been previously importing a ton of gloves from Great Britain because we didn't have any glove manufacturers in the U.S. Then, someone decides to invest in a new factory to make gloves in America. That would require a ton of upfront capital, and they would have to break into an already existing market. To do so, they'd have to be able to make the cost of their gloves competitive, but they're still trying to recoup their losses from their initial investment, and especially if that capital came from investors, that could put a huge strain on operations. Well, what if the person leading this initiative talked to their representative in Congress, and the representative introduced a new tariff on gloves coming in from Britain? This would raise the cost of the British gloves and make it easier for the American manufacturer to have a higher cost to recoup their losses while still being competitive. Tariffs are going to be a big deal for a good portion of the story of the American presidency, so just be ready. In this vein, the Tariff Act of 1789 imposed tariff duties on 65 manufactured goods, with 55 of those being goods that were competing with American manufacturers. The remainder were more luxury goods like tea, coffee, cocoa, and wine, 
that would affect primarily more well-to-do individuals. This was all well and good for the federal government, but some of the states were in over their heads with debt. Hamilton noted in his report that, quote, states, like individuals, who observe their engagements are respected and trusted, while the reverse is the fate of those who pursue an opposite conduct. But if they couldn't pay it off, as the Constitution had taken away from them the most lucrative income-generating tools, what could they do? The answer was simple, Hamilton said. The federal government would assume the state debt. Now, I'm sure you're asking yourself how in the world it made sense for an institution that was already underwater to the tune of 50-something million to assume responsibility for 25 million more. But Hamilton saw that by consolidating the federal debt under one institution and outlining a plan for regular, systematic repayment of the debt, not only would it reestablish faith and confidence with financial lenders in both the federal and the state governments in case there was a need to take out more loans for internal improvements or military conflict, but by taking on the state debt, it would establish a larger line of credit for the federal government. It's just like with personal debt nowadays. The larger amount you pay off, the more lenders are willing to lend you in the future. Hamilton made it clear in his report that the, quote, creation of debt should always be accompanied with the means of extinguishment. This assumption plan, coupled with a plan to fund the national debt, was proclaimed by Hamilton to be, quote, a national blessing. Others in the government would not describe it in such terms. Indeed, some people in Congress hardly knew how to describe it at all. Representative Jeremiah Wadsworth of Connecticut, who would ultimately support the Federalist Plan, asserted that, quote, finances of a nature so complicated that to comprehend it requires more real physical skill and mathematical knowledge than I am possessed of. We have been so little accustomed to system and have lived so long at loose that we are scared out of our wits at the sight of a long financiering report. Others, though, saw something sinister. Benjamin Rush wrote to Madison, quote, I sicken every time I contemplate the European vices that the Secretary's gambling report will necessarily introduce into our infant republic. Indeed, speculators leapt at the opportunities for profit that Hamilton's report indicated and started buying up depreciated state debt and any federal certificates or notes that they could. All of this had previously been depreciated, but Hamilton's report gave them confidence that not only would the value rise, but that they could make a sizable profit on it. Representative James Jackson of Georgia decried the speculation on the floor of the House of Representatives and asserted that, quote, My soul rises indignant at the avaricious and immoral turpitude which so vile a conduct displays. As Borderwich notes in his book on the first U.S. Congress, quote, It quickly became clear that the initial battle over debt would focus on the highly charged issue of discrimination, as everyone termed it. Basically, one faction felt that the original holders of the securities, i.e. certificates or notes, should be the ones to be paid at face value. Another faction felt that it didn't matter who was originally issued the security, but rather who was the present holder. In a modern context, think of it in terms of someone who buys a stock at a certain price, but the price drops and the person sells it. After she or he sells it, the stock then rises in price again. The argument of Representative Jackson and others was that the initial holder should be the one to benefit from the rising price, and part of this had to do with some of the securities having been used to compensate veterans for their service in the war. They felt that the government should discriminate against those who had bought the securities at a depreciated value and now stood to make a profit off of it. Jackson tacked on to this point when he said, quote, 
Look at the gallant veteran who nobly led your martial bands in the hour of extreme danger. See him deprived of those limbs which he sacrificed in your service. And behold the virtuous and tender wife, sustaining him and his children in a wilderness, lonely, exposed to the arms of savages, with the savages in Jackson's description being speculators, where he, the veteran, and his family have been driven. This was very much intended to tug at the heartstrings of his fellow legislators, but the fact that, using my example of the stock, we in the modern era would say that the current holder, not the initial purchaser, was the one who should get the profit, as a deal is a deal, fair and square, should tell you how this debate ultimately turns out. However, to be fair to the faction that felt that the present holders should be paid at face value, it wasn't necessarily that they wanted to stick it to veterans and their families. In our modern stock example, it may take a little legwork, but it's possible to determine who the original holder of a certain stock was. In the case of these physical paper certificates that passed from hand to hand in a time when record keeping was not as meticulous as it is nowadays, it was impossible in many cases to say who the original bearer had been. Even if it were possible, it would require time and energy and manpower beyond the capacities of the small federal bureaucracy to achieve. Beyond that, that would undermine the whole idea of commerce if one could simply reclaim something that had been sold to another person as soon as it was worth more. It just wasn't feasible and practical, but it would also reward the rich and do nothing to help poor folks who had had to sell their securities at vastly depreciated prices in order to support their families. And thus, the debate went on and on. It had begun on February 8th in the House, and all eyes were on James Madison to see what he would say. As was noted in previous episodes, Madison had been key in moving the agenda of the first Congress. Would he side with this proposal from the Washington administration, or would he bend to the will of other southern congressmen who were coming out in opposition to this proposal? Madison had an answer for all on the 11th. This report on the public credit would prove to be the beginning of the break in Madison's close relationship both with the Washington administration and with Hamilton. Madison and Hamilton had collaborated on the Federalist Papers and had helped kickstart the government under the Constitution. However, for Madison, this report had crossed the line, and there was a change in the gentleman from Virginia. He had arrived late to the second session of Congress due to his sister Sarah's wedding, then, en route, developed a case of dysentery. After stopping over in Georgetown, Maryland for a few days, he recovered from dysentery, but developed a case of hemorrhoids. He had to get to New York, though, as Congress was already in session. We have to think of this in the context of the time. Extremely poor roads, carriages with poor shock absorbers, somewhere around 250 miles. Yeah, Mr. Madison was already not a happy camper by the time he got to Federal Hall. Then came Hamilton's report. When Madison took to the floor, he was ready for a scrap. Madison came out in support of the discrimination scheme. Just a reminder, this is in reference to security speculators, not slavery or race relations. Believe me, we'll be talking about those issues a great deal moving forward. Not only did Madison throw his hat in with the pro-discrimination crowd, but he also repudiated the entire premise of Hamilton's proposal. He asserted that he had, quote, never been a proselyte to the doctrine that public debts are public benefits but rather, quote, consider them as evils which ought to be removed as fast as honor and justice will permit. One can imagine the ears perking up in Congress at this point. In terms of the discrimination scheme, Madison proposed a compromise. 
He felt that the securities should be completely paid at face value. But to whom was the question? To those who still retain their original certificates and notes, go ahead and pay at face value. For those speculators, pay them, quote, the highest, i.e. depreciated price, which has prevailed in the market. Then pay the remainder of the face value to the original holder. Hamilton was taken aback by Madison's opposition to his proposal. However, there was one x-factor to this equation with which Hamilton was not familiar. The two had not yet met, but the ideologies were prime for opposition. On November 23, 1789, Thomas Jefferson had landed in Norfolk, Virginia, and he and James Madison had met at Monticello prior to Madison's return to New York. Not only had Madison convinced Jefferson to accept the post of Secretary of State, which Jefferson had learned about upon his landing, Jefferson had begun to exert an influence over the younger man which would define their political careers and the future of the nation for decades to come. For now, though, we must leave our players for today, as our time for this episode is up. Next time, there will be a resolution to the Assumption Plan that is arguably the first major compromise in the government under the Constitution if it actually happened at all, or influenced anything, that is. Join us next time for an episode I'd like to call Assumption, Presumption, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. Until then, I welcome any questions or comments you'd like to send my way. You can contact me via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies. I'm also available on Twitter at presidencies89, Past episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher if you're not listening from there already, as well as on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, where you can also find source information and supplementary material. As always, thank you so much for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.